like two weeks or less. And of course we found your stuff and we're just blown away by the amount of work you had done. I think it's important for listeners to understand that this trajectory for Matt Taibbi and me and other people doing the Twitter files was such that we basically went from being concerned about bad forms of censorship by Twitter and other social media platforms to being concerned about government censorship and pressure on the social media platforms. We couldn't figure out what was going on. All these FBI, DHS, White House, everyone's badgering the social media companies. We didn't, you know, we were like proverbially, you know, proverbially touching the elephant. We didn't understand what the elephant was in its entirety. We discovered your work, Mike, and, and all the stuff you've published at the Foundation for Freedom Online. And it was like, there was just a, you don't have these that often, but it was like a big aha moment. I mean, it was like the, the clouds parted and the sunlight, you know, burst through the sky and suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, this guy is, is way, way farther down the rabbit hole than we ever knew that rabbit hole went. And so, you know, and I've, I've now, we, we wrote uh, an article earlier last week about uh, your work, you're all over the testimony um, and we always, and, and on, on Twitter, we've certainly been encouraging folks to read your work directly, but let's start from the beginning, man. I mean, how did you end up being sort of the expert on the rise of what you call the censorship industry? We call the censorship industrial complex. We all agree it's a terrible thing that we need to get rid of. How did you stumble across this crazy complex, this crazy cluster of government agencies think tanks, academic institutions that were engaged in these pressure and censorship efforts and disinformation efforts against the social media platforms. Sure. So it was sort of a, uh, a mix of top-down and, and bottom-up experiences, if you will. You know, on the top-down side, before I started the Foundation for Freedom Online, uh, I was the uh, cyber, I basically ran the cyber portfolio for the U.S. State Department uh, towards the end of 2020. Uh, I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Communications and Information Technology, which is a long way of saying uh, all things related to the internet connected to U.S. foreign policy um, were, were under my purview. And so it was really from there that I got to see uh, the inner nucleus of how big government and big tech uh, have so completely fused together uh, in, in relatively seamless fashion. The months uh, leading up to the 2016 election, when I saw that artificial intelligence technology was being developed uh, uh, for to, to map and potentially censor discourse online. Uh, I was a competitive chess player as a kid. You know, I, I lived through that moment when when Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, and it caused this sort of uh, flight from the game of chess. And I just remember the the, the mood in the air when. Uh, everyone sort of doubted that this inevitable moment of, uh, of AI domination of chess could happen. And then uh, as, a, as a kid, you know, it seemed totally inevitable to me just watching what was, what was happening with the, the rapid acceleration of, of AI chess engines. Uh, uh, when I started to see in, in late 2016 that there was early stage development to be able to do this, to basically look at political ideologies or social beliefs on the Internet, uh, using the same sort of chess engine technique where, you know, a chess engine will look at a, at a position and say zero, you know, negative 0. 0.5, 
which means uh, you know the chess engine believes that black is up by half a pawn. Well, what what I started to play with when I started to look at Google Jigsaw's work uh, uh, that summer and early the following year was you could do the same thing with political ideologies. You could look at what people were saying about Brexit or climate change or the 2016 election. You could plug in sentences um, uh, and it would spit out a number, you know, 0.67. And that would give you a a toxicity score that would then be routed into, uh, you know, the the detection mechanisms in in the AI on social media platforms. And I said that at that moment, I had this sort of eureka uh, sort of moment, if you will, and tried to tell everybody I could, you know, who would give me the time of day that this is an absolutely existential threat to, um, you know, to, to everything this, this country has ever stood for. Uh, we're no longer, you know, talking about a kid's game with chess. We're talking about table stakes for American democracy. But Mike, how does that, so Matt Taibbi just today re- released a new thread on the vira- virality project, which as you've documented is this project that came out of something called the election integrity project of 2020. Virality project starts in 2021, specifically around COVID specifically to stop bad quote unquote, bad viral narratives. And he talks about how it was, um, how basically the virality project people at Stanford and elsewhere, Graphica, made the case for, you know, made the strong case to Twitter. And I think we presume Facebook, though, I'm not sure if we know that yet, to censor accurate information. Now, we know the White House demanded that of Facebook, so we don't know if Virality did, but Virality Project demands that Twitter censor accurate information about vaccine side effects, true information, including true stories, personal stories, and I pointed out on Twitter this morning, um, someone also pointed out yesterday, too, that, you know, we require drug companies to list the side effects of their drugs in their advertising. And here we have a situation where government funded agencies are demanding that social media companies censor accurate information about side effects because it happened to be the COVID vaccine. How does that I mean, that seems like humans doing that humans under in the grip of an ideology the ideology being everybody needs to get this vaccine and and we're going to basically violate the First Amendment in order to achieve that goal. That, I mean, so when you talk about AI, how important is that really compared to like just this fact that these guys are lobbying behind the scenes, behind closed doors, demanding a very particular ideological agenda be imposed on social media platforms. You know, what's the real threat here? Are they, is it both and, or is one of these more important than the others? And, and why, why do you even mention artificial intelligence when we just see so much bad acting by sure. uh, people in the, in the censorship industrial complex? Right. Well, certainly it's both and because you don't even get the AI programmed unless you've got human direction to do so. Um, but you have to understand, you know, before 2016, censorship was completely reactive. It was it was it was a phase that is referred to bitterly by censorship industry insiders as the age of whack-a-mole, and they still sometimes complain there's an element of that that persists. Uh, but that was information online had to go viral before it was flagged. That is, the censors had to notice the thing was trending, or uh, before it could it could be stopped. That is, it would already be influencing hearts and minds. Um, as opposed to you know a uh, a sort of political radar system 
that could simultaneously fire a missile before the thing ever got anywhere near the target, which is what AI basically changed the game to allow to do. You can look at the transparency reports for Facebook and YouTube, and you'll see that over 98% of content takedowns for speech violations are all pre-flagged by AI first. Uh, what you have here is a situation, you know, for example, you know, the early iterations of the Twitter files broke a lot of scandals about the FBI, you know, where the FBI would would provide a list of URLs and, and would say, hey, here's 22 URLs uh, that we believe may be violations of your terms of service. Well, that's how you get 22 URLs censored. How did EIP get 22 million? Well, it's because it's coded in the AI. They databased 856 million tweets uh, as, as their corpus for potential misinformation. And then, uh, you know, it's not like 22 million was arrived at because they manually reviewed 22 million tweets. What happens is, is you can use a technique called natural language processing, where you, you basically train a data set on the language people use when they talk about a political ideology or a social belief system, like with COVID. So that, for example, if you made a claim about, let's just, if, if, there's a, if Twitter has a terms of service that says, uh, you know, you cannot traffic in the conspiracy theory that, that COVID leaked from a lab in Wuhan. Well, what if, if you made a tweet that said, um, it is increasingly unlikely that the, that the COVID, you know, COVID originated from, from the pangolin, you know, from something to do with, uh, you know, animal, you know, uh, you know, migration from, from, from a pangolin. Well, that's, is that, uh, that undermines the scientific consensus in the pangolin story, but does it really embrace lab leak? Um, how should that be flagged if it provides tangential support? So what WiseDex would do with government funding is it would build out all the different variations of subclaims about that master narrative that's banned. And then that would be a product that would appear in the content moderator's dashboard to be able to, it would basically affix a score and say it's 80% like, so the example they give is, is vaccine uh, efficacy. You know, uh, in, in, in WiseDex promo video, you know, they provide, um, you know, sort of a list of, of statements that the AI will read as being undermining uh, uh, faith and confidence in vaccines being safe and effective. And so they basically, you know, scrawl out all of these different subclaims that if stated in a tweet or if detected by sentiment analysis as, uh, as sort of a constellation of, of keywords, uh, is going to be automatically flagged for deamplification by Twitter. This is how you get censorship in the millions. This is what was done, you know, and, and this is really the the weapons grade kind of super weapon that has that has powered uh, uh, the era of social media censorship really from early 2018 when it became mass adopted um, to present. Mike, are you are you familiar with how the censorship regime works in China? And I'm wondering in terms of like how close or far off are we in terms of aggressiveness, in terms of sophistication, and in terms of approach to the way that uh, China censors online speech? Well, there's a few jokes I like to tell about this specific topic because, you know, in, uh, in one sense, what, what the, the American censorship industry has created is sort of, of a, it's sort of a bad knockoff of, of, a, of, a, of a Chinese good on, on, on the one hand with respect to the, the Great Firewall that was set up in the early 2000s by, by China. But then you also, on the other hand, you've got American grit and ingenuity um, ap applied to the sector in, in ways that, that China um, has never 
is not yet approximated. So I'll give you a good example of this. So there's a, there's a Freedom House report that you can read from 2013. Freedom House is, a, is a, an American NGO, a nonprofit. Uh, it works very closely with the U.S. national security state. When the National Endowment for Democracy was formed in 1983 as a sort of privatized CIA, the Freedom House was one of its very first partners. Freedom House was uh, recently chaired by Michael Chertoff, the former head of the Department of, of Homeland Security, uh, and also the interim head of the Disinformation Governance Board after Nina Jankovic um, was, was terminated in, in April 2022. But Freedom House uh, published a, a long-form assessment of, of the Chinese Great Firewall and its censorship techniques in 2013. Uh, I immediately began working on um, a documentary about about these AI superweapons from 2016 to 2018 uh, uh, that, that actually sort of took this 2013 Freedom House report as the central thesis of what the U.S. has to avoid. That this can't be a, you know, basically a fast track to a, a Chinese China style, style censorship regime. Uh, but I found that actually by by, by 2018, uh, we had actually surpassed uh, the AI techniques and and censorship uh, uh, predicates laid out um, in the Freedom House report. You see, China uses a very rudimentary system for uh, for, for censorship. It's brute force, but it's pretty simple. Um, it, it, at least, uh, you know, uh, in its in its early incarnations, and I believe up until at least 2021, which is the last time I, I was tracking it at the sort of forensic level. But you know, it relied on on keywords, um, like uh, for example, you would have um, you know memes about uh, about uh, Chairman Xi you know, as a, uh, as a Winnie the Pooh bear. And so, you know, they would, there would be, uh, you know, uh, Weibo, which is sort of like China Twitter slash messenger app, you know, would basically put a hard ban on, on, uh, you know, uh, on, on the meme of Winnie the Pooh, um, or a thousand year emperor was something that was, you know, banned for several weeks around the time that, that uh, uh, she basically canceled term limits on on uh, on his chairmanship. Um, uh, they banned the letter N for a short period of time uh, because of its symbolic representations by certain Chinese dissidents, um, and uh, and even the shadow banning was fairly rudimentary. For example, if you were to to publish a banned keyword on Weibo, it would look like you sent the message, uh, but it but the receiver would simply have the whole sentence associated with the word deleted. It's sort of like a junior version of what, what Twitter and Facebook uh, you know, term shadow banning. That is, you think you've sent a message, uh, but your followers don't receive it. Um, but that is child's play compared to what has been developed with tens, hundreds of millions of dollars of R&D development over the past six, seven years um, uh, in the U.S. I mean, what you are able to do to topographically map the entire constellation of a political or social ideology. Look, this is what we saw with COVID. Um, the totalizing uh, parapolitical lockdown uh, over COVID discourse was so uh, unrelenting and complete. And it was, I mean, look at something like the Virality Project, you know, which Matt and Michael have been, have been working on. Uh, the Virality Project says in, in, in one of the reports that they had 66 narratives uh, tagged as banned at the narrative level. You know, so incidents are individual posts. 
and there are thousands or millions of individual incidents or posts that, that go into the construction of a particular narrative. What, what they do is they work with social scientists and computer scientists to create a complete taxonomy of every sort of unauthorized opinion under the sun about COVID. They had four particular categories, masks, vaccines, distribution, which is, which is, a, which is their code for mandates, if you opposed mandates. And then they had a catch-all for conspiracy theories. You know, do you undermine faith and confidence in <laughs> Bill Gates, the World Economic Forum, Anthony Fauci? You know, uh, but every sub-criticism of the efficacy of masks, every sub-criticism or doubt or skepticism or viral news story about vaccine efficacy, about mandates, uh, were all uh, chronicled. That's what they they do in mapping community networks and drawing these sophisticated topographical maps of influencers. In fact, this is partially what led to the banning of Alex Berenson. It was when it was, when Alex Berenson's name was presented as sort of a key node in the data visualization of vaccine skepticism. That was when uh, I think it was Andy Slavitt at the White House uh, uh, thereafter sent an email, I think, to Twitter. Uh, um, it may have been Facebook as well and others. Uh, saying that Alex Berenson's account needs to be banned because he's at the center of this highly compelling data visualization. Well, that data visualization wasn't hand-drawn by Alex Stamos at the Virality Project. That's funded, that, that's, that's what Graphica gets funding to develop uh, from the Department of Defense. That's all AI. But ultimately, Facebook and Twitter have to agree to, to engage in that kind. I mean, in other words, the tools are there, the question is, to what extent are the social media platforms actually applying them? Right. At this point, it's no longer a secret uh, that hundreds of CIA, DOD, NSA, DHS, and FBI officials have absolutely flooded the ranks of the trust and safety teams of just about every major federal, uh, just about every major social media platform, even the minor ones like Reddit. You know, I think the, the head of trust and safety at Reddit now is you know, is uh, former, you know, former NATO, you know, I mean, in the, you see the same thing reflected at Google, at, at Facebook. Look, Zuckerberg is not, Zuckerberg gave a speech in San Jose in 2019, where he said that the domestic censorship pendulum has swung too far. Well, a couple of months after he made that speech, uh, there was a $60 billion ad boycott uh, to compel Facebook to go even harder on domestic censorship or else lose, uh, lose uh, all of their advertisers. And by the way, half of the half of the institutions associated with that boycott were, were, were close allies, I should say, of the U.S. State Department, just like uh, just like you had a very similar uh, situation with the ad boycott organized against Elon Musk when he announced his acquisition. You're going to find you're going to I mean, <laughs> actually, NATO governments actually provided something like a third a quarter to a third of the funding for those NGOs. Mike, you've, you've been really careful to avoid um, talking about the partisan politics of it and keeping it nonpartisan, but I am curious, like, what, what is your theory as to why this has become a partisan issue? Sure. The U.S. foreign policy establishment is and was a, a bipartisan thing, certainly from Truman until Trump. You know, from, from the 1940s until 2016, you know, uh, the, the reason, you know, Ben Rhodes called it the blob uh, was because it was this seemingly totally entrenched, unmovable, uh, uh, bipartisan alliance on foreign policy um, that uh, was simply a force of nature unto itself and could not really be disem- 
you couldn't really disambiguate the Republican from the Democrat side of it. If you if you look at the contemporaneous censorship industry sort of literature and live streams from 2016, um, when a lot of this was getting started, you know, it really sort of started in 2014. Um, but th they were every bit concerned about Bernie. You can I'll give you some examples. So Anders Fogh Rasmussen. Uh, was the former head of NATO from 2009 to 2014, I believe. This is during the during the major foreign policy trials of the Obama administration. You know that incorporated the Arab Spring, Crimea, um, you know the you know the Euromaidan in Ukraine. But Anders Fogh Rasmussen, you can listen to his interviews from 2016 on CNN and BBC. And at the time, this is in the interstitial period between Brexit and and Donald Trump's election. Actually, nobody thought at the time, you know, that that Trump really had a shot against Hillary Clinton. Who they were really concerned about was uh, the vestiges of the Bernie Sanders campaign, because Bernie Sanders was threatening to roll back the Pentagon budget to stop military interventions in Syria and in, and in, in Latin America and in Southeast Asia, and uh, he wanted to redirect uh, the funds that were used for foreign policy maximalism in order to redirect that for his free health care plan. And uh, and for uh, for universal health care and for free colleges, um, Anders Fogh Rasmussen basically characterized Bernie Sanders as a, a living, breathing uh, uh, threat to the entire rules-based international order, because of what that represented as a threat to the foreign policy establishment. A very similar was, argument was made about Jer Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. This is not really a right-left issue. What you have here is is a profiteering class. And a both on policy and pecuniary interests for supporting or opposing uh, various political insurgency groups that that threaten deeply held interests. But yes, absolutely, in the United States, it was totally disproportionately censorship of right wing populist groups, Donald Trump and Freedom Caucus members in in uh, in, in the congressional wing of the GOP. Well, lo and behold, who's the one? What's the one group in Washington right now that has called for a seventy-five billion dollar cut to the Pentagon's budget? That's the Freedom Caucus. So, so it's unsurprising that the Pentagon is contemporaneously funding about a dozen domestic censorship groups, whose top and overwhelming target are the news media institutions, uh, winning hearts and minds towards the Freedom Caucus. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.